Welcome to the Our Safe Harbor Church podcast. Here you can listen to our Sunday sermon, Monday morning message, and midweek Bible study. We hope you will consider subscribing, sharing, leaving a review, but please be sure to check out our website at www.OurSafeHarbor.com to learn more about us and find ways to get involved. Our Safe Harbor Church, we are with you wherever you are. Don't you just hate it when you're in the middle of a good story and you have to quit? That's where we were last week. Hello, welcome back to a midweek Bible class as we are in Hebrews chapter 11 and we're starting at verse 22 right in the middle of the famous faith chapter. To get your context, make sure you've listened to the last few lessons. All right, you ready? By faith, Joseph, when his end was near, spoke about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt and gave instructions about his bones. Again, we're talking to a group of people who have become faithful and were now backing up, backing away from faithfulness because they had grown tired of waiting for Jesus to return and do what they wanted him to do, which would include overthrowing Rome, reestablishing David's kingdom uh, and the borders of that time and such. And so they were just getting tired. It had been a generation, almost two generations, and they thought, well, it's obviously it's not going to happen. It's a dry hole here, as they might say in a drilling business. So he's using these illustrations of people who kept going, even though they never saw the promise, not while they were living. And here, once again, Joseph. Uh, Joseph is an amazing story, and he tells them, you will go back to Israel one day, and when you do, take my bones with you. They're thereby showing he knew that it wouldn't happen while he lived, but he was still faithful. Had he not been, the Israelites would have not been returned, or if they had returned, they well, I guess God could still return them, but, but again, they wouldn't have had Joseph as a hero. He was a hero because of his faith. He's the one that got them protected in Egypt and then told them that this would not be forever, that they'd get to go home again and taking his bones. <coughs> By faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born because they saw he was no ordinary child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Uh, think, think about Moses' parents for a little bit. Got to take a drink because when this is being recorded, which is um, a month earlier than you're seeing it, I'm looking out my window and seeing tulip poplars, which I'd never heard of before I moved to Tennessee. Tennessee, Middle Tennessee has one of the most, um, one of the worst allergy rates in the nation. And one of the reasons is we have tulip poplars, red buds, Bradford pears, ragweed, everything, and it all comes in the season. So it's a blessed time. By faith, Moses' parents, I mean, they never got to raise their boy. Yes, yes, his mother became his nurse, and contra the movie, he always knew he was a Jew. He always knew he was Hebrew. But they didn't get the life they wanted with their son. But by faith, they believed that God would provide, very much like Abraham and Isaac already mentioned in chapter 11. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasure of sin for a short time. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ. Notice that. Not disgrace for the sake of God, but of Christ 
You see what the Hebrew writer's doing there? He's letting them know Christ was all in all of these other things and they had to be patient. He is bringing Christ into the equation here. When we would have expected him to say Yahweh, he says Christ. And he doesn't call him Jesus, which he, he does often in his book. But so why didn't he do it this time? Because Meshua, the, the, uh, the savior, the anointed one, that's what he's bringing into this to remind him. The anointed one was with Abraham too, Jacob, with Joseph, and with Moses. As Christ of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He persevered because he saw him who is invisible. What a beautiful phrase that is. He saw him who is invisible. I have two. I normally see God best in two different ways. One is in nature, uh, very often like the web telescope pictures, um, or I'm taking a look at the incredibly small, maybe the quantum level, and I see God's signature everywhere, or I see him in the rearview mirror. I have a real hard time seeing him in the day, today, right now, unless it was 15 minutes ago. You know, something I saw, it happened, it's got to be a God thing, but I didn't really get it until after it was over. So the Hebrews may have that same kind of, um, you know, limited vision, like we have blinders on, a little tunnel vision. So he's trying to open it up here, seeing him who is invisible. Those are the ones who make it. By faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch the firstborn of Israel. By faith the people passed through the Red Sea as on dry land. It would have to have been by faith. I, to this day, I take a look at that and go, would, would I have walked through there? I'm not so sure. I might just say, hey, can somebody give me a shark stick and I'll hold off the Egyptians for you? If you hadn't seen the movie, that was kind of a scary thing to do, but by faith they did it. What if they didn't? What if they had to wait and see by sight first? You see? But they, this is an incredibly well-written sermon. Uh, the Egyptians tried to do so, they drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell after the people had marched around them for seven days. Once again, what's the point here? The point's not about Jericho. The point's not about Jericho falling. The point is that they had to march for seven days, and I would imagine by day six, you're already feeling the right idiot, don't you think? Oh, it is walking around the place. And tomorrow, he told us we had to walk around it a lot while playing tunes. You know, by, by sight, that looks idiotic, but by faith, they did the walk. By faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. What more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, Daniel, Samuel, and the prophets who through faith, this is a great passage, conquered kingdoms, administered justice, gained what was promised, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. Others were tortured and refused to be released so that they might gain a better resurrection. They refused to be released. You know, you think of the late John McCain, and again, because of his politics, people either love him or hate him. 
And to me, that's just not the point. The point is, when he was in Vietnamese prison and being tortured, he was offered a genuine offer to be freed and repatriated to the States several times when they found out his father was a very important man and they wanted to get that goodwill. And he refused to be released if they weren't going to release the other men. And so he had to remain in there being tortured all the more because he had thwarted their plans to do a um, public, relation, public relation coup. You have to admire that. Stunning. Stunning. Well, here they refused to be released so that they might gain a better resurrection. What do you have to do before you resurrect? Oh, you have to die, Hebrews. You're not done yet. You're not dead. Some faced jeers and flogging while still others were chained and put in prison. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. Um, people think that may be Isaiah that was sawn in two, but just the thought, people. They were put to death by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains and in caves and holes in the ground. And these were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. God had planned something better for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect. This is so big, leading into chapter 12, which is one of the most amazing, powerful, and meaningful chapters in the New Testament. And I say that well aware of what the rest of the New Testament has to say. All of these faces, all of these names of all of these people, this is more than their Marvel comics and DC comics pantheon of gods. This is more than every hero they've ever had. These people exalted these people to just under God in their, in their value and their love and the honor that was to be given to them are all waiting, present tense, with these Hebrews right then for the same thing. Christianity is a here and now and a then and their religion. We are here, but we're also there. This is here now, but it's also then. I would love to go at great lengths with you on this. Time is a construct that we have to use because we are moving through space. But whenever you get down to the quantum level and you take a look at the real guts of the machinery of the universe, space is an illusion. There's a reality to that illusion that we cannot pass we can't go beyond the speed of light, shall we say. But time is not something God thinks about. It's not binding him at all. He's able to move within it and does so because he is within it. And so in chapter 12, you're going to find out how we all come together. And you've already come together with all of these people when you may have not even known that. Oh, let's get into it, shall we? Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Um, cloud of witnesses was a, a term normally used for stadiums. 
the Colosseums, the cloud of witnesses, they're all watching to see how you face this challenge, whether it's one of the, the ancient games or whether it is a fight to the death or just a fight to the submission, whatever it is, they are all watching. Who's watching? Who's in the crowd? Well, it's the angels, it's God, but it's also Abraham, Jacob, Enoch, Joseph. All of them are watching because they are present. And it will become even more obvious here in a bit that they are present. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him, again, delayed gratification, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, scorning its shame. And again, shame is a big thing in Hebrew society, and people were being shamed. If you notice that right with the sawn in half, they would put, they were jeered at. Remember, it says he's not ashamed to call himself their God because Christ had not come back. Their friends were shaming them that they had fallen for this new faith. So he's saying Jesus wasn't ashamed. And by the way, shame was a big part of the crucifixion process. Uh, you, were, you were injured with the, the fist and the whip to the point where you had emptied your insides. I'll just say that in case there are kids in the room. Um, then you are naked, you are dropped, and crosses were not high like you see in the, in, the, in the posters of the paintings. Your crosses were generally no more, your feet rather, were no more than a foot above the ground because they wanted people to look at you in the eye and see your beaten up naked shamefulness and your whimpering and your crying and for them to either be horrified and therefore obey or there's always a subset to the population and every place that will come out for entertainment and have a great time laughing at you, throwing things at you, making fun of you, as some did for Jesus. Hey, he saved others. He can't even get off the tree, that sort of thing. Jesus ignored all that shame. And the writer of Hebrews is telling these people, get over yourself. Jesus wasn't ashamed. God's not ashamed. You don't be ashamed. You believe. Consider him who endured such opposition. Well, let's see, I didn't even, you know, okay. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart in your struggle against sin. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Whoa, boom. Because that's all he's been talking about for a while here, hasn't it? And he's saying, guys, live up to your forefathers. You are Jews. Be proud of who you are. And who they're, they're watching you. Stand up and do not disappoint them. And you have forgotten the word of encouragement that addresses you as sons. And this comes from Psalm 94, and the last bit comes from Proverbs 3. My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline. Do not lose heart when he rebukes you. Because the Lord disciplines those he loves and he punishes everyone he accepts as a son. Um, oh, there's so much there. Sometimes he has to punish them to accept them as sons. Punishment in scripture is remedial and rehabilitative. It is not vengeful. It is not, it's not there to shame and to harm people forever and ever. It is to make a change and to bring somebody, make it possible to bring them in as sons and daughters. 
And so he's saying, right now you're going through your fire, but hang in there because this is what happens to everybody God loves. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons. For what son is not disciplined by his father? If you're not disciplined, and everybody undergoes discipline, then you're illegitimate children and not true sons. Moreover, we've all had human fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. Eh, well, um, certainly respected the intention. <laughs> there, was, there was never a time where I, I got the belt or the paddle or the whatever, because I did. I was in that generation, and then the fathers were quick with their hands and said, you know, oh, that's wonderful, thank you, you're making me a better person. But we did tend to grow up with fewer issues of discipline, but I don't want to overplay that because I imagine some of that discipline caused issues later. Still, we get the point, don't we? We're allowed to talk in general terms. How much more should we submit to the Father of our spirits and live? Our fathers disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. What a wonderful little two-liner there. He um, disciplines us for our good. Parents, often, we've disciplined them for our good. Um, you know, you need to take a nap. Why? Mommy's tired. You know, daddy's tired. You you need to mow the lawn. Why? Because you need to learn responsibility and because I don't want to mow it. You know that, right? God never plays those games. Every discipline he does is for our good, not for his. He was doing all right before he created us. He did this out of love. And every time you have a kid, you know you're welcoming love and pain into your life. And God did it again and again and still does it. And it's for our good so that we may share in his holiness, being grown up being a spiritual grown-up, being whole. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who've been trained by it. I follow a young man on Twitter and Facebook who got to be morbidly obese as a young man and really out of control, but he realized it. And so he, what he's doing is making himself accountable to the Twitterverse and to YouTube. Um, a lot of people have done this. He's not alone, but I find that just remarkable. And he took a picture of himself and he said, this is day one. And he's been sticking with it. And I think he'll continue to stick with it. And it's fun to watch, you know, 70 something pounds down when I'm recording this about a month before you see it. I love that I'm being accountable. You are watching me and I am making the change. That's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. They are watching you. You are accountable. Start making the change. Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. Make level paths for your feet so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. That's a quotation uh, out of Proverbs 4.26. Make level paths for your feet um, has several meanings, but the main thing is, don't make it harder than it has to be. Just don't. You know, I could be um, sitting, and I've used this illustration before, my wife has made a wonderful meal for us, it includes broccoli, and I like broccoli, but let's say that I don't, and that I have said many times I don't like broccoli. And then she goes, how do you like your meal? 
you know, I can say thank you for the meal. I appreciate it. And you even put broccoli in there. You know, it's not a favorite, but evidently you want me to live longer. And I appreciate that very much. I could do that. Or I could say, why'd you make broccoli? I'm not making level paths for my feet here. Or I could say, why'd you make broccoli? You're just like your mother. Oh my goodness, that was not necessary. Make, don't make things harder than they have to be. Let's just do this and do it well. Plan ahead the best we can. Watch for the rocks and make level paths for our feet. Make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one misses the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. Bitter root. In America, they've got the bitter root mountains and I think there's some other bitter root things. Bitter root uh, to a Semitic person means don't keep stewing over something. Now, we normally think of being bitter toward a family member who has hurt us or a neighbor who has caused our life to be very unpleasant. But, and, and those absolutely can go. He's saying, don't let anything be planted in your brain or heart that you continually feed that eventually grows because it's gonna grow and it's gonna take over. Getting rid of those things is a process, not an event, but get started. We have no right to be bitter toward anyone. Uh, we are people saved by grace and we th should therefore be able to give grace to others even though it may take a while for us to get it done right. Moving on, see that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Afterward, as you know, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. He could bring about no change of mind, though he sought the blessing with tears. Now we're about to get to the really cool bit, and so I'm going to rush through this a bit. Um, once again, this is a warning to the people this book is written to, saying, do not reject this Jesus. This is where the blessing is. If you pass this by for any pleasure here on earth that would pull you away from God, then you don't, you, you don't get it back. As we used last week, the rope doesn't swing back far enough again. You, you've lost it. Grab this now. Now, you ready? You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast, or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded. Even if a, an animal touches a mountain, it must be stoned. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. Now remember, he's got all these people surrounding you right now, Hebrews. He's got Moses, Jacob, Joseph, Enoch. He's got Abraham. He's got them all right there. And they're watching you. And Moses said, is, is saying, wait a minute. We're not asking you to do what God asked me to do. They didn't bring me, they didn't bring you to a mountain that you could touch, but if you touched it, God would kill you or they would stone you to death. And it was, it's surrounded with, with cloud and fire and lightning and thunder and earthquake, this terrifying thing. God didn't bring you to that. You have come to Mount Zion, 
to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. Let us stop for a minute and ask what in the world the verb tense here indicates. Remember I told you that time is just a construct that we must use because we are traveling through space and therefore that makes the concept of time, that fourth dimension, to become very, very important. But God doesn't work that way. To God, all these people that died are right here with us. And to God, you and I, suffering though we may, with, with sins and Ill ailments, physical ailments, situational, whatever it is, we are already at a holy mountain, Mount Zion, the new Jerusalem that in Revelation will be lowered like a bride before her husband, this beautiful new city. We're already there. They're here and we're there now. You have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. You're already there. Even though you're looking at your life, people are making fun of you. You've lost your home, maybe a death of a child because you couldn't feed them or get medicine. You're in agony, but please remember you're already there. You're already in heaven to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirits of the righteous men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Because the blood of Abel cried out vengeance, the blood of Christ cries out acceptance, peace, grace, love and you're already there. People have asked me before, how can you tell, how can you know if you'll really be saved? And I've looked at them and I said, it's a wrong question. The question isn't how will you be saved? Because the answer is you already are. You're already there. Wow. So every time we gather with Christ to take communion, whether that's on a Sunday by ourselves, watching our safe harbor, or in a house church, watching our safe harbor, or whether it's a house church that never heard of us, or whether it's in a big brick and mortar church, where if it's on Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, no matter how often you take it or where you take it, as soon as you do, and it doesn't have to be a little bit of juice and a tiny you know, styrofoam tasting cracker. Whenever you take a meal and you welcome the presence of Christ, he's already there. You welcome him. Everybody that you've lost is there. Our friends who we've lost in war are there. The holy patriarchs, the ones who've gone before us, they're there. They're taking it with us right there, right then. That's so difficult for our Newtonian physics addled brains to deal with, but it is not difficult for God because we are already there and we are here. It is now and it is then. John Mark Hicks, a wonderful 
theologian uh, and who, who comes from, who rather works at Lipscomb University here in Nashville, has written extensively on this reality. And he has gone through more pain in his life than any one human should ever have to. And he talks about his son who died and that he does not go to the graveside because that's not where his son is. He meets his son every time he gathers with Christians, every time he takes the Lord's Supper, he is with his son and he is with all who have been lost. I believe that with all my heart. And it is life-changing when you believe this, literally life-changing, because you're not longer afraid. What if I fail? You, you're not going, you're already there. God has promised. We can trust him. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks, that Jesus whose blood offers all these wonderful things. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? Jesus had warned them and they'd refused him and, and Jerusalem falls. I, it's just a horrible thing. Writer of Hebrews is saying, don't make that mistake. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised one more, once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicating the removing of what can be shaken, that is created things so that what cannot be shaken may remain. In other words, the next time I'm removing all the temporary, God says, and you will see where you really are. And there you will remain forever. Therefore, since we are receiving, we are receiving, we're there, we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Now that last line seems like it doesn't fit because it's bolstering you, it's bolstering and then consuming fire. Not to the Hebrews. The Hebrews understood what that meant. Fire was a symbol of burning our sins away, not destroying us, but destroying the sin within us so that we pure can stand before God as Paul would put it, saved as through the flames. So it's not a threat. It's saying he'll get you there. There may be fire, but you will be there. Wow. Probably a good time to stop. Next week, we will take a look at the closing part of the book, and I hate to see it go so soon. It means so much that you tune in, that you send us emails. Some of you who can, that you give that you encourage us. We live off of that. We really do. And you can send something to info at our safe harbor if you want to encourage the team. God bless you. I'll see you next time around. Thank you for watching these. Reach out and let us know you are. That encourages us too. Cheers.